Good morning, everybody. Welcome to um, one of the first lectures of the Alumni Weekend. I hope you really enjoy this morning and, and the rest of the weekend as well. It looks like an amazing program. My name is Elizabeth Frood, and I am lecturer in Egyptology here at the Faculty of Oriental Studies, and I'm also a fellow of St. Cross College. As you will hear, um, as I continue to speak, I'm actually from New Zealand, but I did my DPhil here at the Queen's College. I taught at Liverpool University for three years um, before my appointment to my position here almost exactly three years ago. I take groups of Oxford alumni and Cambridge alumni out to Egypt um, for tours and I accompany those tours with lectures. And there's actually a lecture happening with a, co well, a tour, I should say, happening with a colleague of mine next March. The dates are the 13th to the 28th of March next year. And these are really amazing tours. We go out to sites that, it's, that are off the tourist track. And, uh, and when I went, I saw things that I'd, I'd never been able to see before when I've been out to Egypt. So they're fantastic tours. And this tour, as I say, is going out with one of my Coptic colleagues. And, uh, and she's fantastic. So it should be really good. Um, and I've also been asked to model my lecture this morning on the type of lecture I give in the tour context, just to give you a sense of, of, that, of the type of things we discuss in that, in that sort of environment. So what I do when I'm in Egypt with a group is I begin with a general overview of a topic. And then what I try to do is move into a detailed area, a particular issue or a question that will then spark discussion that we can continue having over dinner or breakfast, whatever the case may be. And also, if possible, I try to draw a little on my own research where it's appropriate. And I'm going to do that a little bit this morning as well, kind of feed in some of the things that I'm working on. My research centres on notions of self-fashioning, how Egyptian non-royal individuals select and present aspects of their identities their careers, experiences, moral character, for display in a monumental context. In particular, I focus on the textual genre of biography, also called autobiography. And these are idealizing life histories that were set up within non-royal tombs or on statues and stelae in temples. My work in this area has centered around material from the late second millennium, the 19th and 20th dynasties of Egyptian history, and a little into the first millennium. But, until now, until this morning, I've been mainly focused on the men. But in the early first millennium, we begin to see the development of texts, biographical texts, belonging to and spoken by women. And these texts express something like biography. It's some sort of equivalent strategy of self-fashioning, but interestingly, it's not directly equivalent. So I want to consider in this lecture this morning how and why women gain access to this form of representation, this particular biographical voice, and how this may relate to transformations of female power in religious ritual domains. The woman that you can see here on my opening slide is a preeminent example her name is Amenirdis, Amenirdis the Elder, the first. And she held office, a particular priestly office, around 750 to 600 BC. She and her descendants represent the culmination of the complex process that I'm going to trace a little through this lecture. She is an end point of sorts, and we will come back to her later on in the, in the course of the lecture. 
So what I'm going to do this morning is divide my lecture into two parts. The first will look more generally at the role and status of women, in particular during the New Kingdom, dynasties 18 to 20, about 1539 to 1075 BC. Material from the New Kingdom is the richest and most diverse for this topic. And it may be material some of you are most familiar with, especially those of you that have been out to Egypt. This is also the period that immediately precedes the first millennium, the period that I'm talking about. And so we'll see some of these developments and be able to sort of trace them through over time. The second part of my lecture will focus on the development of female roles and positions in the early first millennium, dynasties 21 to 25, 1075 to about 700, up to this woman here. My focus will be very much, though, on the earlier part of this period. And what I'm going to do is kind of describe and explore some of the evidence for changes in women's self-presentation in temple and mortuary domains, and what this might mean in terms of power and status. Uh, as you can see, these are large topics and very long time spans. So I've got certain strategies that I'm using to try and focus this. First of all, I'm only going to look at elite material. I'll move backwards and forwards between royal women and elite women. And you will see the line between royal and elite women actually starts to blur during the time period. And, and we'll see this happen as I move through the lecture. I'm also limiting myself in terms of space as well. The lecture this morning will concentrate on material from the city of Thebes, sort of ringed here on the map there, sort of more narrowly in this area and that area. And the city of Thebes, we've got a larger map here. The material that I'm going to be drawing from throughout the lecture are tombs on the west bank here, tombs of nobles, and then the temple of Karnak here, which is a large temple complex temple of the preeminent state god Amun in the centre and then precincts of his consort Mut and his sort of child god, not really, but we can call him that Montu out there. Throughout each part of the lecture I'm going to examine three central themes and case studies to explore the manifestations of those themes. And these themes are female religious and ritual roles, female roles within temple space, the self-presentation of men and women and how they relate to one another, and finally this theme of voice, biographical voice. And in fact, I really should have changed the title of my lecture because my lecture is really about the transformation of female voice in particular temple domains. But of course that relates to power too, and that's something we can come back to and discuss. So Egyptian society was strongly gendered in terms of position and representation. And inequality is at the core of this distinction, as encapsulated by this slide from a 5th dynasty tomb about a 1,000 years before the time periods we're dealing with. And it's a detail from a larger scene. It's a scene of, of a man, a non-royal elite man, hunting in the, in the marshes. He's standing on a boat, and you can see his, the line of his foot and his toe, and that's his wife, tucked by his foot, really not much bigger than his leg in this scene. So women were generally excluded from public affairs and official bureaucratic administrative structures. Their status, as here, was often mediated through their male kin, fathers, husbands, and sons. 
the title held by most elite women was Lady of the House, Nebet Peer. Now, this title does point to the status um, accorded to the management of the household, but also in part to their restriction to that domain too. Yet, despite the social and institutional barriers that women face, they had relative, interestingly, relative equality in law. For example, rights of property and divorce. For example, women could sometimes initiate divorce, as encapsulated or kind of symbolised in this slide, which uh, shows a, what had been a statue of a man and woman, and the woman has fallen out. Um, and when they were divorced, they also had claims on property. Not equal amounts of property with their ex-husband, but claims on some of the property, including their original bride price. They could also own and dispose of their own property as well. So this highlights some of the complexities when we try to assess the role and position of women. Any view of women must take into account that we are not dealing with a homogenous group. Status and role could vary considerably. A wife or mother of a high-ranking court official probably had considerable opportunity to influence decisions and wield authority. And of course, there are exceptions to any rule and any generalisation. The evidence makes this very difficult to assess. Most of what survives to us from monumental, from monumental royal and elite domains are sort of scenes like this, where um, this is from a tomb, um, an 18th dynasty tomb, where you've got the husband with a wife and possibly another female member of his kin group sitting behind him. And scenes like this in, in tombs and equivalent scenes in temples were commissioned by men. Images of women in these contexts are part of centralising, idealising, male-dominated ideologies. But it is through the exceptions that we can begin to map areas of innovation and transformation. So I'm going to begin with the theme of voice, voice as expressed through texts. Elite male identity was fashioned and displayed, as here, in contexts of tomb and temple. And within these contexts, the genre of biography was a central mechanism. And these are texts inscribed within tombs and on statues and stele within temples. And I've just got a couple of examples here. The first um, image at the top of the slide is of an elite male tomb of the 18th dynasty. And below that, you have the biography that was um, set up within that tomb. The statue is a biographical statue of a priest of Amun set up in the temple of Karnak. Now, these biographies are idealising presentations of an individual life, often centred on their performance of office or aspects of moral character. So, for example, this individual in his tomb talks about going out on campaign with the king, hunting elephants, defending the king, that sort of thing, and also acting for the king in royal festivals. Whereas our priest statue talks about growing up in the temple, his education in the temple, initiation, and then his care for the priests and workers um, within the Temple of Karnak, within the Temple of Amun. For women, up until the first millennium, we just don't have anything comparable. There are literary texts which incorporate a female voice, such as love poetry, and I've got a quote from one of these love poems on the slide here, which tells of a young, a young girl who's fallen in love with the boy next door, just down the road. But this text, like most images 
of women probably reflects a male perspective and was probably composed by men. <laughs> we can come back to that in discussion. Um, a context in which we may begin to hear more certainly a female voice is in the New Kingdom is in letters. And we have a number of letters sent by women from the New Kingdom. Now, whether or not these women actually wrote the letters, whether or not they were actually literate, or whether they were dictating them, either way, they can give us a sense of individual choices and styles. Letters from much later, letters from Roman Egypt, show that even when a woman was definitely dictating the letter, the language was adapted and changed for the female speaker. The scribe or the speaker are making distinctive compositional choices that maybe seem to be related to gender. And I'm going to just show you one quite nice New Kingdom example. And this, this papyrus that you can see here with the cursive writing is a copy of a letter written to a king in the 19th dynasty, so about 1200 BC, from a woman who holds a position in the harem at Gurot, which is a site in Middle Egypt. Harems were institutions housing royal women and those connected with them. And they were also extremely important economic institutions, particularly for textile production, for weaving. Now, the photos on the slide to the, on the other side of the letter show some objects that were found at the site of Gurob. Now, they date slightly earlier than the letter itself, but they give us a sense of related material culture. So you have a seal, um, it's a, a seal ring here and here of an overseer of the harem, a man, and a box belonging to a scribe of the harem, another man. And here you have a statue of a woman from a tomb at Gurob, again, slightly earlier than the writer of our letter, but she gives a visual sense of her status. We get a feeling of her, perhaps, from this statue. The beginning of the letter is lost, but she seems to be talking about work which she completed and which she's particularly proud of. Remember, she's speaking to the king here. I shall have myself boasted about because of the work, and do not let anyone find fault with me. It is advantageous that my lord, life, prosperity, health, has had people said to me to be taught and instructed in this important occupation of weaving. It is fortunate that my Lord has found someone fit to do this work, the like of which has not been done for the God pray before. Now, the discourse of self-praise here is actually very close to what you find in biography, but she's concealing it, arguably quite poorly, in praise for the king. Now, you're so great because you figured out that you should appoint me to do this work. So here we can begin to, um, to have a, a feeling for this, for this woman. We can begin to hear her voice. The letter is very formal in register, but it is strikingly direct and forthright in tone. Some features of it, including the confusion of masculine and feminine pronouns, indicate that the scribal copyist was certainly a man. But no matter how much this letter has been mediated by male hands, the tone seems to be a fair reflection of her personal status and authority, a reflection of her voice. This letter gives us a feeling for the diversity of female status, position and experience that normally eludes us. We can begin to apprehend a woman who was in administrative control over a significant concern, the weaving of cloth for the temples. Harems can be viewed as female institutions, so you could say, oh, well, she's just wielding authority within a female domain. But we can see from this, 
the seal and box that um, harems had male-dominated hierarchies. So this can be understood as a somewhat mixed environment, and it's also a very prestigious environment as well. So it's striking that women who clearly had administrative power do not, as far as we can tell, set up their own tombs or dedicate statues and temples during this time period. In the New Kingdom, the self-presentation of elite women, and thus their access to afterlife and memory, was largely mediated through their male kin. Women did not own their own tombs. Um, they were depicted in and buried in the tombs of their husbands. This is a particularly beautiful example from the 18th dynasty on the west bank of Thebes, um, the tomb of a mayor of Thebes called Senefa, and he is depicted with his wife throughout, throughout the tomb. And you can see her behind him here, on this column here, and just tucked in, she's seated just behind him, on this wall here. Similarly, the only way a woman could be depicted in temples through statuary, which is the most prestigious form of representation in temples, was with their husbands. And this is the same man, Senefa. His wife here has a different name. So either his wife had two names or he had two wives. Both are possible. Actually, he's got a lot of women in his tomb that have different names. He could have had up to four wives, but, um, but this is a, a bit of a debate. We don't really know how many women we're dealing with here. Um, but this is a nice example of a statue that was set up in a temple context in which the woman is represented, and she's quite prominent, but she couldn't have had a statue of her own just by herself in the temple space. She has to be with her husband. But this pairing, or in the case of the statue, this triad representation with the child, was potent for monumental display, mobilises continuity, legitimacy, and adherence to social norms. So although the only way a woman could ensure an enduring monumental presence in this time period was through her husband, she was also vital to his self-presentation, particularly in the mortuary domain. And it's the same thing in the royal sphere. The queen was a necessary counterpart to the king, and this is a nice relief of a, a royal festival in which you have the king with the queen closely behind him and participating in this, in this festival. It's a festival of renewal, royal renewal. Um, this expressed the continuity and purity of the royal line, as well as mirroring the creative female-male pairings that in part structured the world of the gods. Divine kingship was balanced to some extent by a divine queenship, and the crowns and insignia that, women, that the queens wear sort of identify them with goddesses. And here you have the, the wife of Ramses II depicted wearing a Hathoric crown. So she's identifying herself with Hathor in this scene. Queens were also present in, in certain temple rituals, as in the royal festival example, and here she is shaking a rattle, a sister, before a goddess. Scenes like this speak to the religious role of queens, which I will discuss further later. So in both royal and non-royal domains, there is a necessity for female presence. Wives, excuse me, wives accompany their husbands through many of the key transitions depicted in the tomb. And in cases where an individual died young, 
or was not married, he's often depicted with his mother. Now, this idea of the necessity of the female presence for transfiguration and transformation is expressed through a particularly unique and distinctive example. And this is in the tomb of a high priest of Honorus called Anhermosa in Middle Egypt. So we're moving away from Thebes just for a moment, well, in Upper Middle Egypt, I should say, just north of the Theban area. And in the cliffs, you can just see the kind of, the, not a very good slide, but it shows the cliffs, and the tomb is marked by an arrow. Down towards the cultivation, there was a temple to a goddess, a lioness goddess called Mehit. And the owner of this tomb, our high priest, was probably involved in the restoration of that temple. So that temple is quite important to his self-presentation. The tomb itself is quite remarkable. This is a very basic plan of it. What's particularly remarkable about it is the prominence of his wife in the scenes. So you come into the tomb through the entrance here, and the first thing you see on the faces of these pillars as you walk into the tomb is his wife. She is standing there. She is the first figure that you see as you walk in. She's also beside you as you come in on the thickness of the door jamb. There's no parallel for this, for this prominence. And... There are also scenes of her on these walls here and here, oops, here and here, again around the entrance to the tomb space. Now, I'm sorry for the quality of the photographs, but I hope you can kind of see what I'm talking about. So what happens is you've got the tomb owner <coughs> depicted here, the, the entrance to the tomb is here, so he's sort of entering the tomb space, and his wife is depicted, and he's holding out, giving a bouquet to her, um, coming into the tomb space here and giving a bouquet to his wife. What's interesting about this scene is that you can probably just make out the lines and lines of text all around her. That text that is wrapping around her is his biography. It's his life story. She's not mentioned in it at all, which is not surprising. But she is visually central to it, which is surprising. And on the other side of the door, so as you come in on this side, you have another scene of him bringing his wife a bouquet. In this scene, she speaks directly to her husband, welcoming him into the temple of Mehit and describing his transfigured and anointed body. Thus his tomb, through this text, is made part of the goddess's domain. It becomes a temple of the goddess Mehit. And his transition from the outside world into this divine temple space is enabled by the presence, speech, and actions of his wife. She bears cultic titles and is a representative of the female divine principle. She is in some way assimilated with the divine while also representing a key part of his lived experience. Her role is comparable to the role of goddesses within tomb space, mediating that moment of transition between life and death and welcoming the deceased into the next world. So this display of ritual cultic role, which royal and non-royal women are depicted undertaking, must speak to a broader reality. And we can think that if women control some kind of cultural resources, which are defined as their own, bit of a cliche, but to say things like birth and transition, 
then it follows that they maintain some degree of power that differentiates them from, or which is differentiated from male power. And in Egypt, in this time period, this, fo- this power focuses around the temple domain and domains of ritual and performance. Initially, this development is confined to royal women. And the first significant person to kind of wield this authority is this queen, Ahmosa Nefertari, a warrior queen from the very beginning of the New Kingdom. And this scene of her, really striking scene of her with the black face, comes from a later period when she's actually deified. She becomes a goddess. And the black represents fertility and fecundity. The other image on the slide is a stela, which records the creation of a priestly office for her, that of the god's wife of Amun. It also records an endowment of lands and goods in relation to that office that she then bequeaths to her successors. So this is more than just a priestly title that she's getting. This is a degree of economic independence as well. Ahmosa prioritised this title, God's Wife, in her title strings. So she uses it more than her title of royal wife or royal mother. She's defining herself in relation to the God and the temple, far more than her relationship to her husband and son. This is very unusual. The title also refers to her role, her sacerdotal functions within the temple. She becomes the human representative of the first female divine principle, who, with the creator God, ensures the perpetual creation of the universe. And this role, this kind of mediation between the generative power of the divine sphere and the mortal realm, is represented by scenes in which women like this, her successors as well, are depicted in temples. So they're depicted in particular ritual contexts, playing this mediatory role. The title of God's wife of Amun was held by numerous royal women throughout the New Kingdom. But it seems to develop into something more purely symbolic, just about women claiming a divine connection rather than the sort of core priestly function. But for Ahmosa Nefertari, it reflects a reality of involvement in the development of religious practice in the New Kingdom. She's very involved in temple building, and uh, she seems to be transformative in some of the ritual practices through building and performance in the early New Kingdom. Perhaps the most famous holder of this office is someone some of you might be familiar with, this woman Hatshepsut, who was a royal wife who later claimed the throne and ruled as king in Egypt during the 18th dynasty. This slide shows a statue of her um, bearing royal regalia, so here she is already king, but she is still (coughs) certainly female and the, the, the statue has clear female attributes. It's a very beautiful statue, I think. The line drawing below, the little kind of rough line drawing of a, of a graffiti-type text, shows her prior to her accession in her role as God's wife, holding a distinctive scepter which is associated with God's wife, and she bears that title in the text. She, like Ahmosa Nefertari before her, preferred to use this priestly title of God's wife of Amun over titles such as king's wife or king's daughter. Thus, like her predecessor, she defines herself by her ritual role rather than her relationship to her preeminent male kin. Her position in particular seems to have a broader impact on the self-presentation of high-status women, the high-status women in her milieu. 
From the beginning of the New Kingdom, the priestly class had been professionalized, and the traditional priestly hierarchies and positions in the temple were closed to women. But from her reign, from the reign of Hatshepsut onwards, numerous elite women begin to hold a title, titled Songstress of Amun, in their title strings, alongside the domestic Nebet Per, Lady of the House. Now, traditionally, Egyptologists don't tend to think that the songstress title was a priestly title. They say that it's more about rank and showing that you're a particular woman of high status in the Theban area rather than actual performative role. And this question of whether it's symbolic or functional is difficult to assess. But these elite women are defining themselves through a performative role in the cult. They are singing and making music for the god, and these are crucial aspects of ritual performance. And I think we have to really think about why Egyptological scholarship doesn't see this as priestly. Again, this is something we could come back to. There is a corresponding visual aspect as well. And again, we turn, return to Senefa and one of his hundreds of wives. Um, here she is depicted with this title. So she's Nebet Per, Lady of the House, his beloved songstress of Amun. And she's holding in her hands key elements of ritual performance. Here she holds a sistrum, a rattle that was used, that you shook before the god to propitiate him, to make him welcome, um, and to sort of, sort of stimulate his transfiguration, I guess. She's also holding here a necklace counterpoise called a menart. And both these items are associated with the goddess Hathor, so in some ways, she's identifying herself with the goddess Hathor. She's also holding a lettuce, which is a symbol of fertility. If you want to know why, you can ask me at the end of the lecture. <laughs> so these women, through these attributes and roles, are really kind of fashioning themselves as priestly performers, whether or not we see this as a priestly function or not, and whether or not we see it as symbolic or not. And from the late New Kingdom onwards, sort of the end of the second millennium into the first millennium, these roles shift in meaning. What may have been symbolic absolutely becomes concrete and functional. There's no more argument about that. We have a proliferation of female titles in the cult. So more titles and more different types of titles must start to mean more functions and more roles. And we start to see the development of hierarchies, priestly hierarchies, some sort of female priesthood in the temple. And the development of this priesthood is marked in particular by changes in the position of the god's wife of Amun. And this takes on a more specialist function, seemingly becoming quite separate from any royal connection. And this is something I want to look at a bit further. So, with the transition into the first millennium, the end of New Kingdom Egypt, the th three themes that I've been working with so far change significantly. The religious role of women and their place in the temple and their self-presentation in relationship to male kin. But what I'm particularly interested in and what I'm moving towards is how changes in these two domains impact the potential for female voice. So I'll begin, as we shift into the first millennium, I'll begin with a bit of historical background just to kind of set the scene. So by the end of the New Kingdom, by the end of the period I've been talking about, um, the 1080s, roughly 1080 BC, Egypt was no longer a centralised state, 
and this map gives a sense of the different, um, or this process of political fragmentation that seems to happen. So the map here, you can see all these different colours on the map are areas of different political authority, different kind of power bases holding different parts of Egypt. Really represents a mosaic of power and control. This is the end point of the period, around 730. In the earlier part of this period, power was mostly divided north-south, and Upper Egypt was held by military leaders, such as this man, who held the title of High Priest of Amun. This individual, whose name is Penedjim, Penedjim I, um, is depicted wearing royal regalia, so he's wearing the royal headdress, but inscribed on his arm, his title is High Priest of Amun. Because of such title structures and other displays of political and religious authority, we seem to see the rulership of Upper Egypt as characterised by something like a theocracy, some sort of theocratic rule. So the god Amun is king and key decisions are made via oracles. And I've represented this a little facetiously by this sort of cartoon-like drawing that shows a cat receiving an oracle from a divine mouse. So um, it's sort of a satirical comment on, on some of the structures of this theocratic state. The integration of religious and political power structures has implications for female position. This is something I'll come back to. These political developments were accompanied by complex transformations of elite culture and representation, particularly within the royal sphere. So in the early part of this period, we no longer get those beautiful decorated tombs that we've been looking at in the early part of this lecture. The tomb becomes a simple shaft with no chapel superstructure, no decorated chapel at all. And instead, the burial chamber becomes the focus and you just have a coffin, some papyri, and a stela. So rather than the tomb being a focal point for long-term commemoration and communal commemoration, commemoration of families, wives and children as well, the tomb becomes a short-lived medium for performative display centred on the body and the coffin. And this focus on the individual body, rather than communal commemorative tomb space, also has significant implications for female self-presentation. So if you can bear these two things in mind, this political fragmentation and the emphasis on the religious sphere as part of this political fragmentation, and what's happening in terms of display, mortuary display, this emphasis on the individual body rather than commemorative tomb space, hold that in your mind, then we'll start to move through and see the implications of this um, through some, some key case, case studies. So as I said, the context of political decentralisation means radical changes in power structures, particularly priestly power structures. And it's interesting to consider why female priestly roles and structures become so important in this development. Why do they suddenly pluralise? Why do they suddenly diversify? Why is this a focal point for change and development? And this is something we can perhaps discuss at the end. I'd really like your thoughts on this. We don't really understand the mechanisms and, driver, and, and drivers for this process, but many of these changes are focused around the god's wife of Amun. And I'll just give you a couple of examples to illustrate this point. So the first um, is this woman, Mart Kare, represented here by her absolutely beautiful coffin. 
And she is a daughter of Panijim I. She is the daughter of this man and the statue. Now, the scene on the sort of black and white image, I'm sorry it's such a terrible, terrible photograph, is carved on a temple pylon in Karnak. And here she is depicted shaking Sistra before the god Amun. Let's just make her out here. Hopefully you can see the line of her wig and her crown and the Sistra she's holding and the figure of Amun here. So this is a traditional female function, this shaking of Sistra. But the text is interesting. May you grant a long kingship on your throne to the gods, wife of Amun in Karnak, the royal daughter of your body, mistress of the two lands, the divine adoratress, Mart Kare. Two kind of interesting features here. First of all, she's claiming divine descent. She is of Amun's body. And she refers to her office as some sort of kingship. Now, this is, this is kind of interesting. She has a sort of royal authority, perhaps just limited to the domain of the temple, but she's still claiming some sort of kingship. Now, it's interesting that in a time when concepts of rulership and kingship are changing so much, that women can lay claim to the language of kingship a little bit, and they can begin to lay claim to some of the regalia and the actions of traditional pharaonic kingship too. Markare is, of course, a member of the ruling family. And it's generally accepted that her position is part of legitimizing and strengthening that power base. But is she just a figurehead? Is she just a marker of power? I think there's more to it than this. She is a daughter, but she's not a wife. She never marries, so her position is not used for strengthening authority through marriage. And it seems that she never had any children. Now, this is true of most God's wives in this period. They hold their office for very long periods of time. They don't seem to marry, and they don't seem to have children. So, of course, scholarship has gone, oh, wow, they must be celibate, they must be virgins. Um, and we scholarship has tended to focus on that and get very, very interested in this idea of celibacy or virginity in these contexts. We can't prove that, although the fact that they don't marry or seem to have children does point in that direction. But I think what's really interesting here is that the god's wife is no longer forming part of a human ruling pair. This, no, this role, this priestly office, no longer represents the continuity of human dynastic office. This office seems to have become specialist and independent. Her primary pairing is with Amun, as daughter, wife, and priestess. The independent power and influence of this position becomes very visible to us at the end of the period that I'm covering in this lecture. So about 200 years from Mark Kare, we come to Amenerdis again, the woman I began this lecture with. This is an alabaster statue of her, um, dating to sometime in her, in her reign or her, her pontificate between 750 to 600 BC. The statue stands at about 170 centimetres, so she's a bit shorter than me. I'm wearing heels, so maybe about, about there, I guess. Um, but still quite almost life-size statue. It was set up in the temple of Karnak in a little shrine um, by the entrance to one of the, the main temple complexes. 
Now here she's holding the traditional regalia of the god's wife, a kind of floral scepter, and in her hand, held in her fist, is the symbol of Hathor, the Menart counterpoise. But it's also interesting that the statue bears a biographical inscription, and that's what I've quoted on the slide here. She says, I was a god's wife, effective for her town, charitable for her gnome, her province. I gave bread to the hungry, water to the thirsty, clothes to the naked, because I know what my local god, Amun, desires. This biography is really striking because it parallels, almost word for word, slightly adapted because she's a woman, um, the types of biographies that men had been writing about themselves for 1,500 years. This phraseology, I gave bread to the hungry, clothes to the naked, is a standard biographical phrase. It's just the classic biographical statement. And so she's really aligning herself and drawing on this ancient male tradition of self-presentation. Amenerdis was the adopted daughter of a god's wife of Amun, and she was, the, she was the actual daughter of a ruler. And she, in turn, adopted other god's wives of Amun, other daughters of rulers. She and her descendants are the primary ritual actors in the temple of Amun. The cult is no longer enacted symbolically by a king, the king figure, or in reality by some male high priest, but by these women. And some examples of, of here. A nice example, I think, this is um, one of Amenes' descendants presenting the figure of Mart to Amun within a temple, kind of like this one. And here you've got other gods' wives of Amun in the embrace of Amun, being held, embraced by the god. So these women are not only adopting quite a lot of royal insignia, and claiming initiations on royal pharaonic models, but they're also playing roles in rituals, as here, that had traditionally been reserved for the king. So here, she's offering Mart to Amun, a very royal kind of type of scene. She's also, they're also depicted being embraced by the gods, libating the gods' image, and in one case, and I wish I had a photograph to show you, but I couldn't find one, um, being suckled by goddesses. So they and the officials who served them held the central authority in Thebes, the central religious authority. They commissioned temple building, especially in the area of Karnak Temple. And they commissioned buildings in, sort of around the back of Karnak. So here you've got the back of the Temple of Amun, and there's a row of temples here. This is the Temple of Anurus Onophorus, which is here. And so what they seem to do is create a new processional route at the back of the temple lined with these shrines that are dedicated to forms of Osiris, but in which their role is absolutely prominent, their image is absolutely dominant. So what we have is women becoming the absolutely key cultic figure in the temple complex right at the end of this period. And this, this is a steady process of development over this sort of 200-year span. And now what I want to do is sort of move back in time and look at what's happening in other spheres of representation, see what's going on and see how this all kind of fits together. So these political and social changes at the very top of the temple hierarchy have a concomitant in forms of self-presentation available for women a little further down the social scale. Now these women are 
still part of the elite in Thebes, but they're not members of the high priesthood, the, the god's wife of Amun priesthood. And these forms relate to changes in burial practice and this emphasis on the individual body. So included in women's tomb shafts are stelae like this that depict women before the god in adoration of particular gods, here Re Herakte. And what's really interesting is women also start to get their own funerary papyri too. So whereas earlier in the New Kingdom, like in tombs, women had to share funerary papyri, like the books of the dead, and they're always depicted, there's always just sort of one book of the dead with husband and wife on it, and the woman is sharing that book of the dead, women in this period start to get their own papyri. And this is a, this is a nice example. This is from right at the beginning of the first millennium. It's actually the woman's papyrus. Belongs to her. Her husband had a separate one. He's one of these kind of royal high priests of Amun. And here she is on the papyrus depicted behind him. Very standard, very traditional. But then in certain scenes on the papyrus, as in this detail here, she's by herself. So you see this kind of process of change and this, process, this slow process of kind of gaining autonomy within the mortuary domain. And this is encapsulated by these two examples as well. Here you have a very traditional scene from a man's Book of the Dead where he's ploughing the fields and, uh, and sort of participating in particular works in the next world. And here you have this woman, owner of this funerary papyrus, doing exactly the same thing. So you start to have women claiming autonomy and power within temple domains among the high priesthood, but also women claiming autonomy, separation from men in the funerary sphere in the next world. And both these strands, I think, enable the final development I want to talk about, which is the transformation of female voice within temple environments. So this is this is the stuff that I'm really interested in. I've only just started working on it, so I'd really like to get your thoughts as I take you through some of this material. So we saw the use of ancient biographical phraseology on the statue of a Minerdis. Biographies of women start to appear long before her statue. Her statue is again a kind of culminating point. But these biographies emerge in interesting ways. They're initially still embedded within male self-presentation and related to male kin, but it's not like anything we saw in the 18th dynasty, and hopefully you'll see what I mean. We start to get quite distinctive and innovative voices emerging. So I'm just going to look at three examples. The very earliest is the statue, or statuette, I should say, um, found in Karnak. Uh, like all Egyptian material, it looks monumental. looks like it should be life-size. It's actually only about that big. So, just a, just a wee little thing. Um, and the scene in front of the knees, sort of across the knees, shows the owner of the statue, Hor, who is depicted here in this kind of quite big cloak, with his arms raised before the god Osiris. But behind him is a female figure. It's his mother. And I'm sure you can see she's actually bigger than him in the scene as well. She's, she's a little bit, bit taller. Um, she's quite prominent. And this makes sense because she seems to be the person who dedicated the statue for her son. Complete kind of role reversal. 
The body is inscribed with two biographical texts that wrap around either side. And the one on the right side of the body eulogizes the, the statue owner, very standard type of biography, but it uses very unusual phraseology. It's quite innovative and strange. And the one wrapping around the left side of the body is in her voice. She is speaking. She describes the care that she took to preserve her son's memory. So his mother, lady of the house, songstress of Amun, she says, I was honest with you, I was straight with you while you were alive. And as for the day you departed for the west, the day you died, I acted to the best of my ability. I built a pure place for you in the temple of Anubis, which I completed perfectly as a work of transition. I hid you there in the west. I made your statue in Karnak, following Amun in every festival, and another there at the peak of Abydos, core ritual centre in Middle Egypt, upper Middle Egypt. I did all of these things for you, that which must be done for every excellent noble. Now, there's a lot of things in this text that are, that are quite unusual and quite interesting. The phraseology of proper care of kin, taking care of your father or your child, usually your father or your parents that have died, is known from earlier biographies. It's a standard biographical motif or trope, but it's never been spoken by a woman before. And this idea that she's creating temple environments, creating tomb spaces, creating statues, all of that draws on traditional motifs of biography too, but here again is adapted to a completely new context. And it's interesting that also in this text she's really thematizing this idea of her son's transition and transformation. If you think back to the material that I looked at earlier, how much this is part of female representation. Now, in a sense, this biography is in, in line with earlier traditions of female self-presentation. Her actions are focused around her male kin. But these are her actions. She is saying something of herself. Her responsibility and her ability, including her financial ability, through this text. Now, admittedly, it's a tiny little statue, so we're not talking about much financial ability, but she also says that she built you know, a, t a tomb space and other statues as well, so, so we are talking about some outlay, um, but we do have to bear the size of this little statue in mind. My next example is this statue of a man called Nacht Efmut, who holds many priestly positions in, in the Temple of Karnak. And now we're talking about something really substantial. This statue is about 1.7 metres high, so I guess about there. Um, but he's seated, so he's over life-size. And there are numerous voices inscribed around the surface of this statue. But most prolific and most distinctive are the voices of his female kin. Now, as you can see on the front of the statue, sort of down by the knees, you have figures of two women... Can see them on either side. Close up a bit. Yep. Um, and this is these are his wife on the right and his daughter on the left. The speech of his wife is more of a mourning song and statement of her devotion to him than a biography. She says, "We will rest here together without the God separating us. As you live for me, I will not be parted from you." She also very unusually, expresses her longing that they will remain together in this world. And this is one of the most beautiful 
passages from an Egyptian text from this time period, I think. Don't let us go to this land of eternity, just so our names might not be forgotten. A moment of seeing the rays of the sun is more effective than eternity as ruler of the underworld. So this desire for presence, this immediacy of presence in the lived world means far more than spending your life with, with Osiris, with the god, of, with the, spending your afterlife with Osiris, the god of the dead. So what she seems to be saying is that this, this presence that she has on the statue enables them both to kind of live in this world, to be in the rays of the sun, to be in the temple environment. That might be one way of reading it. Their daughter, on the other side, also expresses the depth of her loss. She's speaking to her father. Would that you were here with me eternally. Oh, I will not be separated from you. And then her speech seems to shift in tone. I will rejoice and I will delight when I remember you youthful. Then the other children will say to me, she is not without a father or mother. It's kind of an odd, odd text. But what I think she's saying, or how I think you could understand this, is that there is no real loss here. Although her parents have died, they are still together on the statue. Their representations mean that they are still united, they are still together in temple space, and that she has not lost her parents fully that somehow they kind of are enduringly present in the statue. Now, this daughter seems to have dedicated the statue for her father. So although she's quite small in representation, it looks like she was the dedicator. And the reason I say this is because this gentleman has another statue also set up in the temple of Karnak, where he bequeaths all his property to this daughter. So it looks like the statue where he's bequeathing the property is her way of ensuring that no one else can lay claim to the property. It's like, don't you touch my stuff, you know, it's inscribed on the statue, you know, that's it, I've got legal right to it. And then she also seems to have dedicated this statue, which preserves something or says something about her devotion, her relationship to her father. The mother's speech on the, other, on the side of the seat, the same statue, is more fully biographical in voice. This is something that actually does correspond to what we think might be a traditional biography. And she says, I am the daughter of an overseer of Upper Egypt and the mother of great priests. My God, Amun probably, loves me, and he honours my family, for he made me a great one of my town. He venerates me in his domain, for he has bound my heirs to Karnak, mistress of temples. I follow Mut, goddess, lady of the domain, and I adorn her with all perfection. This commemoration is effective, thus ensuring that my heirs may be confirmed in her domain. It's kind of an odd text. I'm not sure I've got the translation exactly right, but I think I've got the sense of it right. This text seems to be all about the legitimacy of her position in the temple and the legitimacy that she, she then bequeaths to her sons including the son that is the owner of the statue. It's interesting that she really emphasises female presence and female space. She is the one who ends up, through her role, binding her sons to the temple. Karnak, the temple, is female. Karnak is a mistress of temples. And then she talks about her role in relationship to Mut, the goddess, the consort of Amun, and her role adorning the god. So that alludes to some sort of priestly function, priestly performance. 
So it seems like through this text that the owner of the statue is, owes his position to his mother and is kind of tracing his, his priestly lineage through her. And she is able, through her voice on the statue, to lay claim to that, which again is not something we've heard before. Now both of these statues were dedicated, I think, by women for men. So I think the woman probably had a hand in the composition of the texts, which probably makes, sort of makes their distinctive features, their innovative features, more understandable. And we're beginning to see a development and expansion in the range of possibilities for female expression. Um, and this is just hinted at in these two texts. My final example, which is my favourite, is quite different. This is a statue of a woman called Sheben Soptu. And in some ways, it falls within more traditional forms of representation. The statue was dedicated for her by her husband in the Temple of Karnak, again around sort of the 900s BC. But the texts inscribed on the surface are, I think, some of the most insensuous and intimate descriptions of individual presence in temple space. And the form of the statue itself is, is really striking. This is the only temple statue of a woman known to me from this time period, or indeed from that new kingdom as well. In a sense, it predicts the beautiful and imposing statues of Amenerdas and the other gods' wives of Amun, but it also makes play with the past. It is closely parallel in form with statues of goddesses from temple domains. So here you have Sheben Soptu on the right, um, on the left, and um, the statue of a goddess, an 18th dynasty goddess from the Theban area. Now, the way I've done the slide makes it look like they're the same size. This statue is over life size. Sheben Soptu's is only 60 centimetres, so about that high. So she's much, much smaller. But there seems to be quite a clear identification with divine representation. There's a sense of modelling, I think. On the title, Sheben Soptu bears the title Musician of Amun Re. But she only bears it once, and otherwise she is referred to simply as a lady of the house, a Nebet pair. The texts do not quite fit our traditional understanding of biography. We're still not really able to talk about a woman's career, her life, in the same way as we talk about a, man, a man's life in biography. But it seems that the boundaries of decorum restricting certain forms of representation, making certain types of representation unavailable to women, in turn enable extensions and elaborations of meaning. So something new comes out of this restriction. The texts inscribed on the left and right sides of the seat, so all around the seat, are among the most sensuous descriptions of the experience of temple space. Throughout, it seems the statue speaks, voicing her desire to remain in temple space and mapping its sensuous geographies. And I'll just quote you a bit, but I haven't put it on the slide because it's, it's quite a lot. I have come to your august temple. I have attained your beloved place. May I hear the rejoicings in the mouths of your wild priests when you appear before me. May my body rise up at your call. May I inhale your myrrh which circulates through the sky. I have come so that I may be in the temple. For I know that this sacred place is the resting place of Atum. May I remember the hidden of sky, Amun, as he desires, as he breathes in the scent of his altars within it. 
May I sit there among its columns, that I may be the scent of myrrh. I have set aside weariness in this great city, the pavilion where a man can forget weary and weariness and worry in order to be effective thereafter. Now, in these texts, the distinction between lived experience, being in the city, being in the temple, afterlife wishes, and the statue's own voice in the temple is blurred. The physicality and sensuality of, of divine presence is really striking. So instead of being a straightforward narrative of a life, these texts form what I consider a statue biography. The statue is speaking, the statue is telling of its experience, and she is the statue. Now, texts like this, which give the statue a voice, are known from earlier periods, but they're never as strongly or expressed as this and never as elaborate. Through the incorporation of sensual and sensory domains in Sheban Sotdu's texts, the sense of being intimately and personally present in the temple is intensified. The statue seems to me to be a culmination of the theme of voice that I've tried to develop through this lecture. She speaks vividly and is enduringly present through this speech and through the statue. And this theme of spoken performance, the power of speech, is also mobilised in the biographical epithets that she holds, that she's characterised by throughout the texts. She is a noble who knows her speech, pure of hands in every ritual, one excellent of speech whose breath thereof is myrrh. When I was on earth, I spoke truth to all. And I've included this little colour slide here, which shows incense, myrrh, being burned on a flame to release the scent in a temple environment. And this idea of myrrh being a metaphor for the self is really important in Sheban Sokhti's text. She, her breath, her speech is myrrh, and she also wants to sit among temple columns that I may be the scent of myrrh. So she becomes, through these epithets, and through the material presence of the statue itself, an element of ritual performance and participation. She becomes that scent, she becomes that myrrh. So through the course of this past hour, I have tried to trace areas in which we can begin to see the emergence of an independence of sorts. This is not an equal citizenship, but a degree of separation, delineation and definition, enabled in part by exceptional political and social circumstances and probably by some exceptional individuals. The drivers of these changes are not fully understood, and what I've just tried to do is to tease out some different strands to assess this impact, particularly in terms of female self-presentation. The religious sphere was the area of, in which women always had the possibility of presence and participation, and it seems to be these highest office holders, the royal women of the 18th dynasty, that provide a model which is adapted to the temple-based political structures of the first millennium. The question is how we might view the impact of these prominent individuals in reshaping temple environments, practices and performances. The tendency has been to view them as only figureheads, but I, I think we need to reassess this. The expansion and elaboration of female priestly roles and their parallel autonomy in the mortuary sphere open up new possibilities for fashioning female identity. We see this with the gods' wives who come to lead temple cult but we also hear it in the speeches of Sheben Sokdu, whose self is defined by ritual action and spoken performance. This female self-presentation draws on the past, on male traditions, but also innovates and presents a new and distinctive voice and presence in the world of the temple. Thank you.